So today, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, we will focus on the last name given to Christ in our passage of Isaiah 96. And if you are confused where we are, we did a hopeful decoration here so you can follow along. We're on the last one. Isaiah 9-6. Let me read the passage to you again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ, whose birth we are about to celebrate and whose return we are anticipating, is our Prince of Peace. He's a Prince of Peace. I'd like to focus on that, just that name today, and and we're going to work through it and hopefully get a fuller understanding of what it means, and especially what it means for us now. How do we apply this, this truth? So I'd like to first give you an explanation of this title. So first, an explanation. Secondly, I'd like us to... Uh, to describe our present experience of it. How do we experience this Prince of Peace now? And then finally, I'll finish briefly talking about our expectation of peace to come. So explanation, experience, and expectation. Okay, so we need to understand what Isaiah means by this fourth title of Christ. What does it mean that he is our Prince of Peace? What kind of peace does he promise? So let's start with this idea of peace. What does that mean? And then we'll, we'll talk about him being a prince. The Hebrew word used for peace here is a familiar one to many of us. If you read the Bible and you, you hear Christian teaching, this word comes up and we just say it in Hebrew, shalom. Shalom is the word that's, that's used here. It's translated peace in your translation, but the word is shalom. Jesus is then the prince of shalom. And many of you know that this word shalom is, is, gives us a much fuller and, and greater um, idea than what we typically mean by peace. So listen to how the theologian Cornelius Plantinga defines it. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. This is what Jesus is promised to do, to restore things to the way they are supposed to be. And to restore the state of universal flourishing and wholeness and delight. This is what the promise is. Nothing less than that. Not just peace in some way that we may understand or experience it, but the complete remaking of creation. And restoring it to that that original design of God where everything is the way it's supposed to be. Exactly right. It's hard for us to imagine, but, but all of us long for that. Few of us can describe it well, but all of us feel it in our hearts, and every day we long for creation to be the way it's supposed to be, 
for things to be put right. Of course, we long for that because we know that things now are not the way they're supposed to be. We live in a fractured world. So if if Jesus is coming to bring wholeness, we automatically recognize that, that we live in a fractured state. Strife, conflict, tension, brokenness, discomfort, disconnect. These are constant realities present in all aspects of our lives. We can't even isolate one part of our life where we would say, well, that, that's perfect, shalom it there, but other parts not so much. No, no, everything is affected by that. Everything is fractured and broken in some way by sin. We are fractured psychologically. We're fractured physically. We're fractured medically. We're fractured economically, socially, politically, environmentally, spiritually. Everywhere you look in this life, in this world, in my life, in your life, there are fractures, there are brokenness. Just a day ago, I read a story of a giant aquarium in the lobby. Have you read the story of a lobby of a Berlin hotel bursting? I mean, I can't imagine being, being there at that time. It's a huge, huge aquarium, 52 feet high, containing one million liters of water. One million liters of water. I can't, that's hard for me to compute. I can imagine a liter or two, but a million? And 1,500 fish. 1,500 fish. The largest freestanding cylindrical aquarium in the world. And when it burst, imagine, right? All of that just breaks. Two people were injured by falling glass. Hotel was flooded. The neighborhood is flooded. It's how much water there is. Uh, People are evacuated, put in other hotels immediately. The vast majority of the fish dies. They can't save them. Water is everywhere. Incredible damage. When I read that story, you know, my first thought was, I thought, yep, <laughs> that's a great picture of what, what our world really is. That's, that's where we live. Something beautiful broken. There's displacement and injury and devastation and long-term damage and and a touch of absurdity. That's our world. This is where we are. And this is the world that Jesus comes to. He comes into that world, into that absurd, damaged, broken world. We're not at peace. Who can claim that we are at peace? Who can claim that things are working exactly the way they're supposed to be working? Who is mad enough to say that? We're not at peace with ourselves. We're not at peace with others. We're not at peace with God. Even a cursory glance at what is happening right now all around us reveals that we are not at peace. Internally, we cannot get rid of the sense of guilt and shame. And man, have we tried. And it just doesn't go away. It just keeps fracturing us from the inside. We just can't get rid of it. Nobody feels whole. For all our considerable efforts to live authentically in line 
with who we feel we are. Arguably, we are less happy with ourselves than we have ever been. Let's, let's just be honest about our true condition. We've really tried, really tried to be happy. We've, we've, we, we've tried to cast off whatever boundaries, whatever restrictions we think kept us unhappy, and we are less happy than we've ever been. We change our partners, our homes, our careers, our leaders, our gender. It's absurd, absurd reality. This is the absurd part of our world, that we do these things and we, we do so many things just to be happy, just to be at peace, but peace seems to be no closer. We remove all barriers to our fulfillment, including children, and the woman out, because we think they interfere with our personal happiness. We're willing to do awful things to try to be happy, to try to be at peace. But for all the resources available to pursue healthy relationships, dysfunction rules, the universal pain and frustration of illness, that's enough, but is aggravated by the confusion of the healthcare system. If you don't feel bad enough when you're sick, you just try to go to the doctors. Even in the freest societies, injustice is evident, obvious. Even among the ones who try, we can't avoid it. There is distrust and suspicion between neighborhoods, between ethnic groups, between nations. Violence erupts with regularity and inevitability. At any given time, there is a war happening somewhere on our planet. This is the world that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is promising to restore to the state of shalom. It's almost impossible for us to imagine. Jesus says, I'm going to come, I'm going to be your Prince of Peace, and I will restore the harmony and flourishing and justice and happiness and peace that all of you desire. That's the peace that he promises. Nothing short of that, nothing less than that. Complete restoration, complete harmony, complete flourishing. That's what he wants. Now, what does prince mean then? Okay, if that's the, if the peace is the shalom, but what is, what is prince? Well, it's not prince charming, right? Some of us go, some of us have children or our children. We're thinking prince charming. No, different kind of prince. It's not the purple prince of pop from Minneapolis either. If you're of a certain age, you think of prince, you think, okay, now how do I spell it? It's very hard. It's symbols. It's not letters. It's also not a member of the royal family whose mission in life seems to be to show how hard it is to be a member of the royal family. It's not that kind of prince. So in what sense is Jesus a prince and a prince of peace at that? Now, if you look at the usage of this word in the Bible, you will find, and maybe surprisingly to you, maybe not, you will find that aside from prince, it is most often translated commander. Did you know that? So in the Bible, princes are, they're officials, they're leaders, they're, they're captains, and often they're described as commanders, the military language. Naaman, for example, you remember that great Syrian, and he came to Israel to be healed in 2 Kings 5. He's designated as the commander of the army of the king of Syria, second most important person in Syria, next to the king. 
That's the same word. He's the prince of the army of the king of Syria. He's the commander. When Joshua, in that dramatic, dramatic passage in, in Joshua 5, when Joshua, the leader of Israelites, meets the commander of the army of the Lord with a sword drawn. Do you remember that passage? What a passage. That's the prince, too. Like, he is the, the commander of the Lord's army. He's the prince of the Lord's army. It's the same word. So, so prince of peace in our common language and in our songs, when we sing Jesus is a prince of peace, it sort of allows us to see him as, as, as a passive participant, as uh, maybe somebody who, who is hypothetically abstractly, passively for peace. But when you call him commander of shalom, right? Let's change the translation here. What if we sing about Jesus as the commander of shalom? Doesn't it change your perspective of what he's come to do? He's no longer passive. He's the commander. He, he leads his army. He's on the offensive against all fractures in his creation. Actively attacking sin. The commander of Shalom is not just waiting for the world to change. He's not waiting for peace. He's bringing peace. He's establishing peace. He's actively restoring everything that is broken. I came across this quote from Augustine. And they say that no sermon is complete without a quote from Augustine. So this will be a complete sermon this morning. Augustine, the great North African bishop, gives us a vivid image of the brokenness and healing of the world. He says, Adam has been scattered over the whole world. He was in one place and fell, and as in a manner broken small, he filled the whole world. But the mercy of God gathered together the fragments from every side and forged them by the fire of love and made one what was broken. The artist knew how to do this. Let no one despair. It is indeed a great thing, but reflect who that artist was. He who made, restored. He who formed, reformed. What he's saying is that our our understanding of the world has to be put in light with what Adam did and what Christ came to undo. And Augustine says that when Adam fell, when Adam disobeyed God, when he turned away from God's word, he fell and shattered. Humanity shattered and filled the world with fragments of himself. That's the image. But Jesus, the second Adam, when he came, he came to gather the fragments and by his love make whole again what was broken by sin. So Augustine says that Christ is the only one who can do that. Why? Because he's the creator. He's the one that originally made Adam, originally made the world and made humanity. And so when he comes, he comes to restore, he makes and remakes. He forms and he reforms. He's the only one who can do that. And what a great image. Adam shattered in pieces and Christ come in to gather it up and forge it by his love into one again. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Christ, succeeded. Where the first Adam disobeyed, the second Adam obeyed. 
Now, Adam disbelieved God's word and rejected his will in the garden. But Jesus trusted God's word and submitted his will to God's in another garden. Adam exalted himself by eating from the tree, but Jesus was lifted up on the tree to draw all people to God. Adam led death into the world. Jesus trampled death by death for our sins. Adam led humanity away from the presence of God, but Jesus leads us back to God. Adam died. Well, so did Christ. But Christ on the third day rose again. And he offers life to all who are willing to trust him to be their commander of shalom. That's what he's come to do. Nothing less than shalom, and with no less energy than attacking sin and bringing creation back into whole again. That's our Prince of Peace. That's the explanation. Now, let's talk about our experience of that peace. And the question is, is this prophecy relevant to us today? Does it matter for me today? And the answer is yes. Of course it matters. It matters to you. It matters to me today, right now. We can experience peace from Christ now in these following ways. So let me give you four ways in which we experience peace with God now, or peace of God now. First, it is that we have peace with God. Peace with God. Romans 5 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's present tense. Not you will have it, but you have it now. Since we have been justified by faith, since you have been acquitted by God based on the sacrifice and victory of Jesus, because you trust him to be your commander of shalom, that means that now you have peace with God. You're at peace with God. Listen to J.I. Packer, another theologian that helps us understand that. Packer says, There is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death, and on forever. He says that there's no peace like the peace of a person whose, whose mind is possessed with full assurance that they know God. There's a, a, an obsession in your mind. You know that you know God. There's full assurance that God is with you. How? How do you know that? Because Jesus died and rose for you. And so you can say without arrogance that I know God and He knows me. And I'm at peace with Him right now. I am at peace with God. No matter what is commonly believed, our greatest problem is not the lack of money or the diagnosis of cancer or a troubled marriage or moral decline of our culture. Those are not our main problems. Those are all aspects of brokenness, of course. But the cause of all brokenness is our broken relationship with God. Our fundamental problem 
is that we are under God's judgment. And given our sinfulness, given how often we have refused God's love, and how much damage we have done to ourselves, to our creation, to to His creation, to others, given that reality, He is absolutely right to judge us. How can He not? How can we claim that we would stand before God and He would accept us based on who we are and what we have done? But on that cross, Jesus, our commander of Shalom, fell on the grenade of God's wrath. This is what He's done for us. In our place, Jesus experienced full scope and ferocity of God's wrath so that we can have peace with God forever. And you can have peace with God right now by simply trusting Jesus. Very simple, but a profound movement of the heart and in your life. Faith, trust. Trust that Jesus did for you what you can never do for yourself. Never. A million years you can't fix it. But he did it. Broken for you so you can be whole. That's one. We can experience that peace with God now. And many of us testify to that. Secondly, we can have peace with ourself. We can have peace internally with ourselves. Because in the gospel, in this message of Jesus' coming, we know who we are. Finally, we know who we are. Do you know how many people are wandering around this world wondering who they are and coming up with all sorts of ideas of who they should be, who they feel that they are, who others say that they are, and few of them know who they really are, but we know because it's been revealed to us by God Himself. The coming of Jesus into this world explains why we feel the way we feel about ourselves. You know... I often think about myself and I think of, what, what is wrong with me? You know, you do something, you think something, you feel something. It's like, what, what is wrong with me? Why can't I overcome this? Why do I think this way? And then I just stop myself and say, well, I know what's wrong with me. I'm a sinner. I know the answer to that. I know why, why I move this way and I go there and I do these things and I plan these. I know why, because I'm a sinner. I actually know who I am. I'm a sinner. And that explains the way I feel and the way you feel about yourself. There's tremendous freedom in finally accepting that I am the problem. (laughs) We go around blaming all sorts of people and systems and, and others, but at the end of the day, I'm the problem. And there's liberation that comes through that recognition. And the gospel tells us that. Why do you think Jesus had to come and die for you? Because you're the problem. There's only one way to fix it. And the way he fixed it should tell you how big of a problem you are. And so I can have peace with myself because I can understand finally what's wrong with me, why I am the way I am, but then more than that, that in Christ I am redeemed, restored, healed, accepted, loved, forgiven. Yes, I'm a sinner. But by God's great mercy, I'm also a saint. I'm a sinner, and I don't know when I, what I want to do, I don't do, and then I do what I don't want to do. Yeah, that's me. I'm the problem. But Jesus took that problem, 
And he saved me. He solved it. Now, I'm, I'm saying things that should be very familiar to all of us. I'm probably saying something that I've said before, I'm sure. But imagine the power of that realization. Imagine if we really tap into that identity. Not blaming others, right? Taking responsibility for myself. But also knowing that Jesus took responsibility for me. And then he saved me. And now live out of that freedom. So we can have peace with ourselves. We really can through the gospel. The gospel of peace in Jesus can heal a fractured heart. Now, thirdly, we have peace with others. Now, it gets more difficult as we progress, right? And there's more objections, and I'll address them very quickly. But thirdly, we have peace with others. Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So in Christ, according to Scripture, according to his word, we have the resources to mend relationships and to experience genuine unity and community with others. Whenever I experience conflict with someone, whether it's my fault or it's their fault, or often as it is the mixture of both. I need to remind myself that I am not operating out of just my own ideas of how this should go. It helps me not to get discouraged because I know that what's actually happening here and the potential of what is happening here is reconciliation. That no conflict is doomed for a Christian. Because we live within the reality of the Prince of Peace in our lives. And no two Christians should ever feel completely discouraged and hopeless about their relationship. In Christ, we have those resources to actually maintain unity and fix relationships and work through conflict. And yes, this unity is not here in its fullness yet. I don't, I don't want to exaggerate that. But it is already here, in part. And unity happens when we operate under the same command. You and I will get along if both of us are following the orders of the same commander of Shalom. That's what Scripture says. He is our peace. I am not your peace, and you're not my peace. But He is our peace. And if both of us bend our knees to Him, if both of us come to Him in humility and say, Lord, show us. I know I'm a sinner. I'm not surprised that I've messed up here. So show me. Show the person that I'm in conflict with how to resolve this. Help us. Give us spiritual resources. Give us grace by your Holy Spirit and resolve it, and he does. Unity happens when we have that kind of posture, that kind of direction towards him, that kind of deference to, to him. He becomes our peace. And how can we refuse to follow the one who spilled his blood for us. So if you are persisting in conflict, just remember, he's your commander. He's your commander of shalom. How can you disobey him and not seek peace with others?
And fourthly, we have become peacemakers in the world. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Wherever the children of God are, there is an increase of shalom. Now, I mean true children of God. I don't mean those who, who use the name of Christ to gain power and more, more power over others. I don't mean that. I mean true children of God. And I don't mean that there is absence of conflict where Christians are. No, no. We're engaged in the cosmic fight between good and evil, and we serve under the banner of commander of shalom. So we are engaged in a fight. Conflict is inevitable. But shalom comes through God's people. It comes through the church. Where Christians are, there are hospitals and orphanages and church communities and witness to the truth and hope of reconciliation. Historically, that is exactly how it happens. You just throw Christians into a culture and you will see good things happen there for others if we are faithful to who we are. Evangelism, when we share the gospel with others verbally, evangelism is an invitation to shalom. That's what we're offering to people. Not just forgiveness of guilt, which it would, be, would be big enough to offer. But we're offering shalom in the way that Jesus offers shalom. This great flourishing. Yes, it's increasing, it's gradual, it's growing, but that's what we're offering. And so let's finish by talking about our expectation. Even as I speak, the longer I speak about our present experience, right, we're already feeling that there is more to come. It's not exactly the way it's supposed to be. And, and yes, I have peace with God. I'm honest when I say that I am at peace with God. I am honest when I say that I understand myself and my identity is much more intact with Christ than it was without Him. I can also point to particular relationships in my life where, where, where God's shalom broke in and fixed and mended and healed. Now, those are all true experiences. I can also point to, to, to examples of me entering a situation and helping bring peace and helping bring shalom. Those are all true experiences, and they're real experiences now in the present, and every Christian testifies to that. But it's partial. It's gradual experience. I still feel guilt before God sometimes, even though I know I'm not condemned. I know Jesus' blood is enough. I know that, but I still feel it. I still struggle with my identity as much as I know I'm in Christ, but all sorts of things pull and push and move me away from Him. I still experience brokenness in relationships, even in the church, even with other believers. I still experience the dysfunction of my community. The psalmist laments in Psalm 120, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Well, that's a common experience for a Christian because the world is broken and we're in the world. So we struggle with that. Listen to Jesus himself. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, promise of peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. What is he talking about? You have peace now, present experience, but in the world you will have tribulation. But I have overcome the world. This is where we live. Real experience, but also an expectation of something greater coming. 
Something still has to happen. It's not done. The commander is not done uh, conquering all that he needs to conquer. More things are coming, and more and a greater reality of shalom is coming. Though undeniably real, God's peace is not here in its fullness yet. But I expect that it will be. Now, Isaiah's designation of Jesus as Prince of Peace is followed by verse 7. Look what Isaiah himself says. Isaiah knows that when Jesus comes, there will be another, another cycle, another stage of that redemptive activity. He says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's own passion, God's own desire, God's own will fuels the increase and expansion of shalom under Christ until one day he will rule supreme. That's the promise. He's already come. He's already brought peace into our very real experience. We already know it's here. We, it's real to us. But the increase will continue to happen. The zeal of the Lord will do this until finally it will be full and our experience of shalom will be full. Advent is a season of anticipation of that time. Part of the reason why we, every year we spend these weeks on anticipating and expecting and waiting and longing for God. It's not just preparation for Christmas. It's preparation for His second coming. It's longing for His return to remind us that as He came once already, He will come again. And when He comes again in glory, everything will be set right. And so we sing hymns like we're going to sing later at the end of the service, a hymn by Isaac Watts. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, wherever he sees curse, wherever he sees dysfunction, wherever he sees brokenness, there his blessings will flow. He will do it. The zeal of the Lord will do it. Flesh and spirit, heaven and earth, man and woman, government and people, nations will be reconciled and reunited under Christ's rule one day. And that is our great hope. Our great hope that what we experience now, which is wonderful in itself, to have God now, to know Him and be known by Him now, to have a family like ours in the church, to be able to do good things for others in our community, those are great blessings already, all coming from the Prince of Peace. But more and unimaginably more will be given to us to the point where there will be no more curse. Nothing will be wrong. Nothing will be sick or broken. I'll finish with this. Um, on July 1st, 1750, we're going back a ways, 1750, Johnson Edwards preached a sermon to his congregation at Northampton. But the sermon was unusual because as a sermon preached a week later, his church fired him from his church. If you fire me, please don't ask me to preach to you the following Sunday, okay? Just <laughs> let me go. Let me heal. Let, let me work through my stuff. Well, in those days, you know, it's hard to get a preacher 
in Northampton. So he's still available. He hasn't left. So they ask him to preach the following Sunday after they fire him. There's a controversy about membership, access to communion. It was going on for a little bit, and finally the church dismissed him. And so he preaches the sermon on 2 Corinthians 1.14, which reads that on the day of our Lord Jesus, on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. That's his text. That on the day of the Lord Jesus at the return, that the ministers of the churches will boast of their people, and the people of the churches will boast of their ministers. And this quote illustrates his expectation of peace on the day of Christ's return. This is why he was able to preach to his church a week after he was fired. And by the way, he preached the gospel to them. So this is what Jonathan Edwards says. How highly, therefore, does it now become us to consider of that time when we must meet one another before the chief shepherd, when I must give an account of my stewardship, of the service I have done, and the reception and treatment I have had among the people to whom he sent me. And you must give an account of your own conduct towards me and the improvement you have made of these three and twenty years of ministry. For then both you and I must appear together, and we both must give an account in order to, in order to an infallible, righteous, and eternal sentence to be passed upon us by him who will judge us with respect to all that we have said or done in our meetings here all our conduct one towards another in the house of God and elsewhere, who will try our hearts and manifest our thoughts and the principles and frames of our minds. He will judge us with respect to all the controversies that have subsisted between us with the strictest impartiality and will examine our treatment of each other in those controversies. There's nothing covered that shall not be revealed nor hid which shall not be known. Luke 12, 2. All will be examined in the searching, penetrating light of God's omniscience and glory, and by Him whose eyes are as a flame of fire, and truth and right shall be made plainly to appear, being stripped of every veil. All error, falsehood, unrighteousness, and injury shall be laid open, stripped of every disguise. Every specious pretense, every cavil, and all false reasoning shall vanish in a moment as not being able to bear the light of that day. What is his hope? What is our hope? That whatever confusion we have now, whatever brokenness we experience now, there will be a day when we will be before the judge before our Lord, before the commander of Shalom, and he will make everything right. And maybe I'm confused about a few things now. I'm sure I am. It'll all get clarified. And the light will shine, and all darkness will not be able to overcome it. So here's my challenge to you. Do you have peace now? As I've described our experience, can you say, I have peace now? Because of Christ, peace with God. I know who I am. I'm working towards peace with others, believers or unbelievers. Is that your reality now? And secondly, can you expect peace in eternity? Can you expect that whatever is lacking now will be fulfilled in eternity? And for you to have his peace, you have to have him as your prince. 
There's no other way for you to have the peace that he offers. You have to have him. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. It's his peace. You can't have peace without him. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid.